Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, February 8th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Uh, So, Tom Brady is the greatest football player of all time. The... Uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers slaughtered the Kansas City Chiefs, and I was struck by the fact that the most watched broadcast of the year, the Super Bowl, um, famous for its um, randy, rowdy uh, commercials uh, that are uh, that cost more than the gross national products of most countries. Um, had a quality uh, or were missing a quality that was entirely defining of them for the past 25 years, which is sexiness. There is no, the coat, the response to COVID and to black lives matter and everything for some odd reason uh, is this um, is the conclusion of all connection between sports and sex. And the fact that this is something that uh, men watch uh, in uh, sort of extraordinarily overwhelming numbers and that therefore they are appealed to when you want to eat a nacho by a girl in a bikini or if you want to, you know, do almost anything, uh, there's a girl in a bikini. And now there are no girls in... The, the bikini uh, is now apparently as, you know, as as evil as a as a noose hanging in a, you know, in a, in a barn. Okay, but can I just chime in to say there was one commercial with a great deal of sexual innuendo, but it was for Amazon's Alexa voice uh, activation device. And the idea was that an Amazon employee was imagining that her Alexa device looked like the incredibly attractive Michael B. Jordan. And there were, and, and her husband kept saying, you know, Alexa, stop dimming the lights because the wife would, you know. And, and there's a scene where she's in the bathtub with the, you know, Michael B. Jordan as Alexa. That was the most sexualized commercial. And I, it struck me that that was actually okay because it was sexualizing uh, technology and a man <laughs> and a man, man. Yeah. right yeah, even man. he was all covered up when she made a right. cameo in her commercial right i mean i i don't know what to make of this i thought that you know the commercials there was some point 10 years ago when they crossed the line into i mean they were often i thought quite repellent uh in their sort of pursuit of this you know connection between sports sex and food or Sports, sex, and alcohol, or sports, sex, and car accessories. And not only the commercials. Don't forget, uh, the Super Bowl was where Janet Jackson had the um, her uh, mishap. Infamous her, snip slip. Yes. Wardrobe, yeah. malfunction. <laughs> wardrobe malfunction. Sorry, right? wardrobe. Yeah. Yes, the wardrobe malfunction. Oh, and even just a year or two ago, though, I and mean, we were I mean, we were talking on the group text last night. I personally am glad not to see aging pop stars like trying to swing around stripper poles at the halftime show, like J Lo and some others did in the past. Like it, I, it was nice to see the halftime uh, entertainment stay fully clothed. Yeah, but it's an overcorrection and it's not a healthy one. It's a uh, it's a fear of libertinism, a fear of male sexuality, a, an abject terror of anything that isn't earnest, anything that isn't really committed to the moment that we're in, which is so grave and so serious. And anything that distracts from the seriousness of our seriousness is is a threat, is perceived to be threatening and, and um, something that, that should be stigmatized. 
I just think it's an interesting, I mean, it's a question of, of trying to discern how these decisions got made uh, and, uh, and, and the direction in which the advertising went. Obviously, we've had a year in which, you know, close to half a million Americans have died from the coronavirus. And so the idea that you didn't want to make it just like light, all, you know, like lighthearted, like nothing bad had ever happened, um, that's understandable. And the earnestness, I guess, is also understandable in that same like post 9-11 context where, you know, can we ever be, you know, can we ever be ironic again? Can we ever laugh again? All of that, you know, nation and mourning. Um but that doesn't mean that, you know, when you're sitting around trying to figure out what your Super Bowl ad is going to be with your ad agency and everything like that, that you're that the the other themes aren't someone says, well, you know, we could uh, get, I don't know, you know, uh, we could get uh, Kim Kardashian, we could get Khloe Kardashian to, you know, eat a not, you know, to eat a 3D Frito or 3D burrito, you know, uh, Dorito or whatever the hell it was, and not Matthew McConaughey, but they got Matthew McConaughey. And why, what is it about this moment? I think it is that uh, it has now become impossible in popular culture to know where the line is. And so you just avoid the line. Like you no longer. Here's a line that I wish they wouldn't cross Um, you can't make a chocolate cake with mayonnaise. That was the first thing that popped up in the, in the stupid mayonnaise commercial with the mayonnaise fairy where she whips up all the leftovers into something edible. And the first thing that's on the table is a chocolate cake. That's horrific. Why can't, make a, why can't you make a yeah, chocolate I tried. cake with mayonnaise? It's, uh, it's, it's egg white. I don't even know you people. I, I refuse I to don't, believe I that. Food I food shaming. <laughs> yeah, you're food shaming. Um, I believe that you... Listen... My aunt we'll make a chocolate cake make with things with Don't jello molds that no human being should ever have been able to make with jello molds. So you can't tell me that there aren't perfectly, perfectly coherent recipes. Bring back aspic. Oh, <laughs> oh, if only it were aspic, you know? So John, regarding your point about um, being afraid not to cross any lines, um, the thing that I noticed about really is almost every commercial was that they have, um, they made sure to cover every base in terms of um, demographics. So every um, sort of single ad, no matter what it was, if it was uh, every family was mixed, you know, uh, if they were um, camping, they were, you know, uh, this sort of beautiful Benetton ad of a family, you know, out in the woods or in the truck or, or everywhere um, because there's, you, you don't want to, leave anyone out. You don't want to, um, you know, uh, forgo the possibility that absolutely anyone could be involved in anything. And it was, it was consistent. I mean, it was, it was every ad. It was also weird that the one era of nostalgia that seems to have been embraced as safe now is that we were talking about this, the 1990s, right? You had the Wayne's World, you had Edward Scissorhands references, you had these meta meta Seinfeld, Seinfeld references. Jason, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting how many of the, the mo- cultural moments hark back to the 1990s. There's right. actually a, a, a racial element to that, too. You, you, this is not related to the Super Bowl, but you had sent us this advertisement for uh, an Apple Watch. I think it was Apple Watch that had, like, African colors. And the very first thing that came to mind to me was, very, was the early 90s. Because that was, that was the aesthetic that, if you were a, a consumer of popular culture, was, was everywhere. 
well the united colors of benetton right that that's what that's what um that's what abe is is, is referring no to. not just not that's that's more 80s um but um uh, in the early 1990s sort of the the african aesthetic yeah. um was very popular uh you know yeah the cosby show with its you know introduction that was like that and um you know, half a dozen sitcoms that I loved and watched every minute of uh, that were um, that utilized that aesthetic. And that kind of disappeared in the late 90s and 2000s. So it, it is very nostalgic in that sense. Well, it's nostalgic in that sense. But of course, it's also if we're, we're if we're in the age in which, you know, Black Lives Matter and the and the great the great evil is white supremacy, then the cultural signposts that are seem to be entirely that banish white supremacy entirely from, from existence are, are now, are now the only acceptable guideposts. But I, I mean, what's striking is these are the most expensive commercials that are, that are both produced and released in the United States every year. They cost millions to make and they cost millions to buy. And they represent quite a substantial, just buying one commercial represents quite a substantial chunk of the overall advertising budget of a lot of these companies and products and things like that. Right. So uh, generally speaking, I think you want to move the needle on sales. <laughs> if you're going to spend $10 million on an ad, you want to see either product, you know, you want to see your product's name enhanced uh, or you want to see your sales go up or something like that. There's got to be a metric that makes it valuable to be, a Super Bowl advertiser, and I, I think uh, these commercials showed that now companies have all kinds of mixed uh, goals uh, with these with these presentations. Like they are, they don't want to get in trouble on social media. They don't want people to attack them for being uh, retrogressive. They don't. They want to get praise for being progressive and in the right mindset and in the right mainstream. And they are doing so, I don't know if it harms their commercial prospects. I, I really don't. I have no idea. I have no idea how this works or how they measure what is a success or what is a failure with these ads. What I do know is that the politicization of everything is just... It's just everywhere. It's choking everywhere. Except for the Oatly. The Oatly ad is clearly intended to haunt our nightmares indefinitely. Like, what was that? I don't even understand what that I ad was. I am the only person in America who thought that was funny. I mean, I it, it was, was funny really for funny a minute, but that, it became unnerving. The CEO of the oat milk ad playing a weird song on a, on a keyboard on a, in a field. A Yamaha keyboard in a field. I a field of oats. I thought it was funny, but I gathered that I am very much in the minority. <laughs> on this uh on this front but i mean I, I we are never going to be free of the politicization of everything mm -hmm. i mean i mean we've known this about football since colin kaepernick's hijinks started uh that and and what happened at the beginning of the football season with the black lives matter stuff on the helmets and everything like that uh, uh, yet there was no kneeling uh last night from what I could tell. Ha. Huh. Well. No, they had stuff on the back. Like Brady had well, and really racism on his helmet so and stuff. Six months yeah. ago. Yes. You know, I mean, uh, it's, uh, right. Well, they, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're done. They made their, you know, they took their stand and, you know, now they, you know, want endorsements. 
I guess. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure it was disheartening because, I mean, who cares? Like, it's like if you overemphasize how disgusting the over-sexualized commercials were, you know, 15, 20 years ago, and you say, ah, what does this say about us as a country? You know, I mean, maybe you're like, take a chill pill. Like, you know, you don't like it, fine. You know, go do something else. And now you can say, well, everything is being politicized. It's horrible. And it's like, take a chill pill. Nobody is paying the slightest attention. But I don't know. Um, where do you guys come out on this? I, I mean, I, 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 I find it stifling, and I don't, I don't know necessarily what the actual impact is on the country as a whole from this kind of thing. Um, but um, I, I've got to say, I, I don't think it's good to uh, have uh, the population be sort of lectured at. Um, in this in this way constantly. I think that probably exacerbates the, the kind of, sort of fracturing and uh, paranoia and like, you know, mutual resentments in the country um, to, to, to be sort of um, lectured at in that way. Well, and it is it is ubiquitous. I think it wouldn't bother the, the Super Bowl aspect of it wouldn't bother me so much if it wasn't everywhere else. Like literally you open your phone and you're getting lectured by Apple. You open another, you know, you get on the bus and every ad is telling you that, you know, you have to fight white supremacy. There comes a moment and particularly for young people, I think, who are who are kind of marinating in the in popular culture they just start to tune it out. So it has a weird, uh, it has a strange effect on kids who are constantly hearing this. It also doesn't allow for genuine criticism of things that are bad. So I got into this discussion with my kids about the all the ads for CBS's new series, The Equalizer, which has Queen Latifah. I think Queen Latifah is great, but the idea that a middle-aged uh, woman is going to go around kicking butt as a cop, I, I mean, I'm a little skeptical, but we were talking about the Denzel Washington version and you know all the different versions, the original TV, version but for them it was very clear it's like well you're not allowed to say that because it's a strong black woman in the lead and that's the whole point of the show and i thought it probably is right and so i went on twitter and i saw everybody commenting along those lines like how dare you she is a queen how dare you say that this is not going to be a great reboot well maybe it will be but the point is you're not even allowed to have the conversation about whether that was a good casting choice because it becomes racial it becomes political in a way that's oh, wait a minute, boring Adam. so the commercial aired and then there was a criticism of people criticizing the commercial yes. before it even was over. I mean, this happens in real time. So yeah. was there even an argument that was made that they were responding to or were they in preemptively anticipating? Preemptively anticipating. That hadn't any, even yeah. been issued yet. Yes. So the original Equalizer, it's a funny idea. So the original Equalizer, which was had one of the great first seasons of any show ever, and then basically it it did everything it set out to do. So, you know, the idea is that there is this tormented former intelligence operative who clearly did black ops and assassinated people and stuff like that, who was racked with guilt over his behavior. And he is retired and he's moved to New York, which is a cesspool of crime, criminality and horror as it was in 1985 and he basically writes wrongs as a as a kind of quiet vigilante. So uh, this was very much appropriate to the moment, set in the right place, 
and had this fantasy element of it with this middle-aged British guy, Edward Woodward, or British or Italian, uh, Australian. I can't remember because he had been in Breaker Morant, which is an Australian movie, but he himself spoke with a British, not an Australian accent. And he is just kind of like uh, being uh, an avenging angel or a guardian angel uh, outside the realm of crime, you know, outside. So how is this going to play now? I mean, in a weird way, you make it as, you know, it's sort of like he's like Bernhard Getz, but from the left, right? Because he's doing it to expiate his, the crimes of like killing DM and, you know, knocking off right, you know, knocking off good left-wing regimes and places. But for, but for vigilante New York 1980s vigilante purposes, I'm guessing if this show is as woke as one expects everything to be now, that she will be fighting cops or she will be fighting white supremacists or something like that in some weird version as opposed to, you know, criminals on the street, which is, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, how that, how that plays out because I don't know. I mean, look, no matter how you slice it, CBS, you turn on CBS in, at, at night, and uh, we're living in a time in which we don't like cops anymore. Cops are terrible. ACAB and you know, Black Lives Matter and all this. And we're still, we've still got 10, 12 hours of network broadcasting a week, which is a celebration and a lionization of the cops. There's an FBI series on CBS. There are, you know, five NCISs. There are 12, S, you know, Law & Order SVUs. There's 19 this. There's 20, you know, it's like... All we ever wanted, we still want to watch black hat, good guy, bad guy, get the criminals and, you know, retire the, the evildoers um, stories. So it'll be interesting to see how woke Hollywood tries to square the circle here because we're not supposed to like that anymore, right? Well, it, a, a, a really remarkable... Uh, first-rate big piece for our March issue, which we will close this week, on the decarceration, uh, you know, the sort of the, the world of wanting to end, wanting to sort of ignore crime and end punishment, uh, the, 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 the new move in American criminology and, and, and social order. And uh, we'll probably have it out at, toward the end of this week on the website, and everybody should watch for it. Uh- but John, your your point about um, so the, the retooling of things like the Equalizer in that way reminds me of kind of what Hollywood did with um, like certain uh, action movie genres involving, say, terrorism, um, where uh, the the villain at the end turned out no longer to be uh, uh, agents representing uh, an American enemy, but you know some some crooked figure in the American security establishment instead, right. you know, um, and it's, it's a similar kind of turn. Um, I don't know that the audiences particularly cared then either. You know, I think it was, if, if it's about the action then it's about the action and, and they'll, they'll take it either way. I mean, it's funny because, uh, you know, we, we, we have some kind of real world version of this, right? We have a fight for 10 years after 9-11 and the decision that we needed to go hard at, you know, Islamofascist 
terrorism and uh, liberals in the left, and particularly when the Obama administration came in in 2009, were like, no, no, what we really need to do is focus on domestic right-wing terrorism, right? So now, because of QAnon and what happened on January 6th and all this, you can see on the front page, it's like, we went the wrong way. We focused on the wrong thing. We should have been, you know, investigating domestic terrorism this whole time and not, you know, not gone at that. We, you know, we've made, we've empowered this, which is interesting because it's, it's taking, it's going to take the left in a pretty crazy direction for the left, which is that it's not so easy to investigate domestic terrorism because then you start getting into whether the FBI and, you know, and local law enforcement and all of this are, are in, in trying to codify and watch Americans in, their act activities, whether they are crossing the line into illegal, improper, and unconstitutional surveillance, which watching non-American actors abroad and seeing who they communicate with in the United States, which was the key to investigating, you know, Islamic terrorism, had about it this quality that you were still what what was going on was something that was being organized abroad imported here and largely involved people who were not necessarily citizens of the United States and therefore and and they weren't and people weren't just, now you just everybody is a citizen of the United States what's the FBI going to do tap everybody's phone i mean what is are we going back to 1962 where bobby kennedy tapped 200 million phones in the united states i mean it's a kind of weird thing that's going on here in order to satisfy a a new narrative and not that I don't think that people are legitimately, you know, people are legitimately frightened and, and, uh, and all of this needs to be taken seriously. Obviously it needs to be taken very seriously. But, um, you know, when I was growing up, uh, the worst thing you could say about the federal government was talking about the COINTELPRO program, which was the effort to investigate domestic terrorism in the form of left-wing terrorism. And COINTELPRO became a, you know, there were hearings and it was evil. The FBI was, you know, J. Edgar Hoover were, were, doing, were doing evil in, in, in surveilling uh, Americans who, of course, have the right not to be surveilled by the government. Um, anyway, it's, a, it's an interesting sort of uh, merger, I think, of pop culture and where it's going and the... Uh, final triumph or what feels like a kind of weird uh, talking point distraction triumph, which was, you know, oh, you guys, all you all you are is Islamophobes and you just want to, you know, take down brown people. And now it's, you know, you see they they stormed the Capitol. So now every everybody who ever voted for Trump should be have their phones tapped. But it's also it's going to present and we're already seeing this is presenting dilemmas for lawmakers on the left who, you know, so over the weekend, you know, my my favorite new annoying representative, Cori Bush, uh, said, you know, posted a, a tweet where she said, you know, she quotes Martin Luther King saying riots are the voice of the unheard and pointing to a, a, a jail riot in, in uh, St. Louis. Um, the demands of the rioters were insane. I went through and read the whole the whole post about uh, what they were 
claiming it. You know, they compare themselves to victims of the Holocaust. It's insane. Also should be noted that they're claiming this is their writing because of conditions related to COVID, but there aren't COVID cases as far as we've documented in that jail. Like there, it's not like a rampant uh, situation there. Anyway, she quotes that and she was immediately called to account by a lot of people, mainly conservatives, saying, wait a minute. <laughs> It's okay. It, it's the voice of the unheard when the people voicing it is, are on your side politically. But when it's not convenient and they're, you know, say storming the Capitol, it's fine. Now, I've, there are a lot of parsing of words like is one an insurrection versus one's a riot. But the whole point is that she was misusing the quote in the first place, because although King did say that, it was in the context of saying this is not the way to do things like riots are actually counterproductive. And I still believe in peaceful, you know, uh, protests. But it, it, this idea that you can argue for either surveillance of your political opponents or, you know, rioting is fine if they're on your side of the political aisle is going to lead to a lot of contradictory statements from public officials, too, which I think is not going to help us reach clarity on these things. Right. Guys, let me uh, let me let me take a, 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 a break here to talk to you about uh, our first advertiser today, Freshly. Because look, dinner time can be chaotic. Trust me, in my house, dinner time is chaotic. I got we're kosher. I got a vegetarian. I got someone with a lot of allergies. I got a kid who eats nothing but pizza. So it is it is pretty chaotic in our house. And uh, Freshly tells me that it's easy and you can solve all of these problems because their chefs take care of your meals a few nights a week and take the pressure off you. Freshly offers chef-made, nutrient-packed, delicious meals delivered fresh to your door. No cooking required. Grocery shopping and cooking can be a pain, especially right now. And with Freshly, you don't have to. Your meals arrive cooked and fresh every week, so you can keep your fridge stocked and skip the trip to the store. Ordering is easy. Visit Freshly.com and choose from over 30 delicious, satisfying, better-for-you meals like steak peppercorn, sausage baked penne or their chicken pesto bowl freshly can fit your lifestyle with a variety of plans and meals to pick from that work for your dietary needs preferences tastes and family size and now our listeners can try freshly for just six dollars and 16 cents per meal stop searching the internet for healthy food near me every night and start living life freshly your meals are always delivered fresh never frozen and are ready to heat and enjoy in just three minutes with new meals added each week, Freshly brings the convenience of chef-made, nutritionist-designed classics right to your kitchen. And right now, Freshly is offering our listeners $40 off your first two orders when you go to Freshly.com slash commentary. Stop stressing about dinner. Go to Freshly.com slash commentary for $40 off your first two orders. That's Freshly.com slash commentary for 40 bucks off your first two orders. And we thank Freshly for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um, so there's a big piece in the Wall Street Journal this weekend about uh, experts in the world of COVID looking at the variants, looking at everything else, and saying, you know what? This is never ending. This idea that some point there's going to be a date in which the pandemic ends and everything can go back to normal, it's not going back to normal. This is going to go on for years. We're going to be wearing masks for years. We're not going to be able to really be fully socially integrated again for years. Uh, and, um, and and not for years, forever. Well, no, it's said for years in the in the Wall Street Journal story. I I beg to differ. Um, that Wall Street Journal article made it pretty plain 
um, both in comments from uh, the uh, former director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Tom Frieden, who said, quote, I don't think the world has really absorbed the fact that these are long-term changes. Going through the, fa- the five phases of grief, we need to come to the acceptance phase that our lives are not going to be the same. And they do mean ever because the journal continued on to define the, quote, potentially lucrative COVID-19 industry that maintains testing and temperature taking regimes, indoor ventilation standards, social uh, interaction restrictions, and masking in perpetuity. I would just like to point out that I loathe Thomas Frieden. Thomas Frieden was the was the health commissioner of New York City before he went on to run the CDC and he, you know, did things like ban trans fats and I mean he you know he was the guy who didn't want big cups of soda sold. You know, it's like classic health totalitarianism. That is his game. So the notion of walking around saying things like, uh, you know, don't worry, you'll just have to wear a mask forever is very consistent with Tom Frieden's general worldview, which is that he should be able to stand atop you telling you what to do and how to behave. Not an elected official, not never elected to anything, nothing. He's just a bully with a medical degree. Anyway, that's the Tom Frieden story, but it is indicative, since he is the key voice in that article, it is indicative of an attitude in the public health world, which is, oh, you know what? We're never getting out of it. And more importantly, the article points out that there is now a world of deep financial incentive to the perpetuation, the eternal perpetuation of the COVID regime, because we have... I don't know what we have testing. We have people, there's billions and billions and billions of dollars, trillion, probably trillions of dollars worldwide that is going to be thrown at COVID prevention, COVID curing, COVID this, mask, whatever it is, and uh, HEPA filters and, you know, new ventilation systems. And however you want to slice it, there is now going to be a world, a lobby world of people for whom this is a profitable enterprise who are going to be very aggressive because they have right and reason and the health of everyone and life-saving, you know, their life-saving pikuach nefesh right there to help you. So you'll just do this forever and they'll help you and they'll make billions. Yeah, the Biden administration is in real trouble here, and I don't think they re- fully recognize the co- the conundrum that they put themselves in. <clears throat> if there was a single rationale, stated rationale, for voting for Joe Biden in 2020, it's that he would alter the trajectory of the pandemic. He said at the nominating convention that the first step I will take will be to get control of this virus. He said at the debate, I will take care of this. I will end this. He's put out positioning statements around the to that effect. But people in his orbit are speaking out of both sides of their mouth. We talked about Ron Klain, chief of staff, uh, who seems intent on coddling teachers' unions. Anthony Fauci apparently had a call with teachers' unions in late January, saying that the president's objective of reopening schools in 100 days is likely unfeasible, in part because of these COVID variants. The variants that uh, we assume, we can only assume because there's no research around them, must be the worst possible thing ever that there will be no protection for. Um, 
And, uh, you know, now this confused language from people like Jen Psaki, who contradicted the CDC director saying, you know, she was only speaking in her personal capacity when she said that it was okay to open schools without teachers getting vaccines. She wasn't. Um, they're trying to have it both ways. And this president made a pledge. Maybe it was an ill-advised one, but it was one he nevertheless repeatedly assured voters of that return to normalcy and to use Anthony Fauci's words, a degree of approaching a degree of normalcy, which is indemnifying language. But nevertheless, normalcy is the goal. And now they're starting to back away from that. And that's going to become a significant political issue for we've been talking about the schools forever. If we're talking about the schools in 2022, I think it hurts Democrats substantially. If we're talking about the pandemic restrictions in 2022, um, there's going to be a real backlash. And they don't see it coming because everybody around them is safety obsessed. But I see it coming. Well, there, there's also already, uh, to that point, I think you're right, Noah, you see a shift in the messaging about um, the COVID relief bill, even just over the past, you know, say 48 hours and, and into this week, what we're going to see is less of a, obviously, no emphasis on the bipartisan, let's all work together stuff that's out the window, but it'll be, it has, we have this massive package. And even though some economists, even economists on our own side of the aisle are raising alarm bells about the size of this they're going to use this in the midterms as saying, look at all that we did. And the Republicans weren't on board with this. And they're going to hammer Republicans saying they don't care about your health and safety. But I think you're right that that'll have been that that's a long time that they're going to assume that the public's going to continue with a lot of these restrictions, which we already know if, if you know, just, just judging the school issues, the, the tide is turning on a lot of these things. And I think in order to sustain this message that we need to have this huge relief package, they have to continue the you're not safe yet message as well. And so hence the variance, hence the hemming and hawing about schools now. So I think it's, it, it is extremely risky. I think Noah's absolutely right about that. The uh, Ron Klain, the White House Chief of Staff yesterday tweeted out something that said, is it so much to ask people to wear a mask for a hundred days to bend the curve? Now, he was talking about Iowa, which is lifting restrictions as we speak. Bending the curve was 2020 rhetoric from the spring of 2020 about the first lockdowns. Two weeks to bend the curve. Stay inside. Don't go anywhere except to the supermarket or the drugstore. We're closing parks. We're closing playgrounds. There will be nothing for anyone to do. Two weeks to bend the curve. And the curve wasn't bent, really. I mean, the curve, you know, we ebbed and flowed over the summer and then into the fall and all of that. Readopting that rhetoric is kind of chilling to me because, first of all, 100 days is three and a half months. It's not 10 days. It's three. It's almost three and a half months. So three and a half months and it and we don't get to retroactively date that to january 20th the day that they were inaugurated the biden people i guess it's going to start counting when the relief package is passed when exactly does this first of the hundred days to bend the curve take place and it is, is, it is the middle of february that's march april may we're talking about to the, near the end of may that we're basically being told almost nothing is going to change. Now, again, everything is different everywhere in the country. 
And if you live in New York, it's one thing. And if you live in Iowa, it's another. But it's not 100% different across the country. It's unif- the, it, the collapse of cases, case rates, is uniform okay. across the country. It's staggering. This, is to- this, this, this thing that he's saying now is completely untethered to any data that we have. It's not like the, the curve is bending. The curve is collapsing. Right. COVID case rates look like GameStop stock. It's falling through the floor. And no one seems to want to address that fact. They're terrified of that fact, in, in fact, because to acknowledge it and then for it to rebound, I think, would probably be politically perilous. But that just exposes how much they're thinking about these in, this in political terms. I don't know. Not I don't know. That that's, there's they also are, they are terrified like they are terrified of the variants. They're now terrified of the variants and the variants haven't manifested themselves, but the variants are going to mass- manifest themselves. So we have a we're having a false dawn with this caseload drop which is you're right, is colossal. It's it's we're we're at half the number of cases that we were a month ago. There's also elite panic at work here. This is we don't want the the unreasonable citizenry to get too hopeful, too happy about the good news because then they will go out and be reckless. And this, yeah, is- I saw, I saw my, I saw my, 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 uh, my favorite liberal, Madame Defarge, not the conservative Madame Defarge of the Federalists, but the liberal Madame Defarge, Molly Jongfast, screaming on Twitter last night because people in Tampa Bay were celebrating the victory uh, of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers outside in the open air outside they weren't in a club they weren't in a they weren't in a you know a bowling alley they weren't in a basement they were outside many of them masked and it's like this I hope they all die. I mean, she puts Florida's going to kill us all. They said Florida's going to, well, and it's worse than that. Florida's going to kill us all. Right. It's worse because there are, there are liberal journalists who were doing the same thing on social media last night. These are, and then if you go back and look at their old tweets, they were celebrating the crowds in the streets when Biden won the election and literally saying, let's get out there and party. I mean, it's the, the hypocrisy. We've talked about this for since the pandemic began, but, but that's right. Uh, The elite panic point that Abe makes is really important because the hypocrisy Hypocrisy now is is infecting the Biden administration's message, which was actually consistent and appealing when he was running for office, and is now becoming kind of interesting to watch him twist around. And they don't see it as sorry. That's right. Well, I just want to add the, the elite panic is also behind the articles like the one in the Wall Street Journal that says we have to prepare ourselves for the fact that we're never getting out of this. Because let's say it's true that COVID uh, is going to continue to perpetuate in some form for the foreseeable future. What there, what is there for us to prepare for? We'll be living it. That, that, that will be the real, the only, the only reason to say this is to, is to instill us with the kind of fear that will inhibit our actions. Briefly to the mindset that I think is evinced by people like Molly Jong Fast and um, others like uh, Chris Hayes at MSNBC is that they genuinely believe that the COVID pandemic was done to us, that this was, the result of public policy, negligent public policy, um, adopted by Republicans and embraced by Republican voters. And they see it as an act of not God, but man, and therefore that it can be addressed through uh, human engagement and it can be perpetuated by human activity. Obviously it can, but it is being done so deliberately. They really see an act of, of, of agency in the pandemic here. 
I mean, that's an important point that, that um, uh, this is a disease with a villain for many people, right? Diseases, and we've seen this over time, you know, the desperate effort to find, uh, you know, a environmental, you know, the idea that there's a complete environmental link with cancer so you can blame GE for phthalates and the phosphorus in the water, or you can blame nuclear power plants, you you know, looking for a corporate villain to explain things like autism, right? So there seems to be a spike in autism. So obviously it's the pharmaceutical companies. You're finding a villain for a disease. That is a very, it's an interesting impulse. It's an activist left-wing impulse that is very powerful. And here we are and uh, the Trump administration mishandled COVID. I just don't think there's any question that it was mishandled. But this idea that uh, um, it, you know, is the cause of hundreds of thousands of deaths is a is an evil. You know, it's a it's a it's a it's a deeply unjust accusation um, because it's a disease. It is a disease that was caught. And, you know, the most extraordinary thing about this disease that remains the most extraordinary condition of this disease, unlike every other pandemic we've ever seen, is this bizarre fact that it seems to pass over children to an extraordinary degree. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we have been saved from a kind of terror, elemental terror of a sort that we've only uh, kind of approached at, at certain moments uh, uh, that children are spared because of course all other pandemics kids died first or pretty you know with compromised immune systems but they uh, died first uh, part of the new talk about variants though of course is that uh the new variants may not spare children um this is this is what what we're, we're starting to hear that uh it's not they they are they will be more infectious, more deadly, and um, less discriminating in terms of age. Right. Well, I mean, anything can be true of anything. You know, I mean, if you if you want to design worst case scenarios, the worst case scenarios are very easy to design. It won't respond to the vaccine. It'll kill children. It'll be more infectious. It'll be more virulent. You know, I mean, uh, in the end, um, you know it you you freeze a planet for a year to 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 a certain degree and you really are going to get to some point at which people say i am just going to take my chances now or the entire society will somehow in some bizarre way which to be fair we've been predicting every couple of months for the last year but i mean with an open ended notion that you're not going to be able to go to a movie forever and you're not going to be able to go to a sport your kids aren't going to be able to play sports forever and you're this and that there is it you know at some point you're going to be like it's not like death is not as you know death is not the worst thing that can happen to you that's the weird part of this you obviously it's not something you can say now but at some point you say yes we live with risk you know i i you know i could get killed uh, you know in a car accident and I drive every day because I have to get somewhere. I mean, I you know, it, we can't go on like this. Well, so that's the, the unintended. The articles are crazy, but they're but they're indicative of a mindset 
that I think, Noah, you're right, is going to be, there is going to be some kind of a rejection that is going to be very hard to, you know, sustain. I mean, or very hard to uh, to turn back with fear. But, you know, that is the unintended consequence of the elite panic. So if you, if you give people no hope for a light at the end of the tunnel, then they will begin to say, John, as you said, well, I have got to take my chances. There are there are things uh, worse than death. If you if you say, "Hey, we're getting this thing licked. We are there is light at the end of the tunnel. Just hold out, you know, a little longer. We're 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 almost there. We're pre-. then there's reason to say, look, I haven't I haven't caught it up till now. This isn't going to be my life forever, and I'm going to be vaccinated. Right. I mean, you know, the other part of this is Scott Gottlieb, who is not exactly Mister Sunshine says that by the end of March, we're going to have a surplus of vaccine, in part because of the bizarrery of this population of Americans who are resisting taking the vaccine. But, um, you know, everybody who wants the vaccine is going to get the vaccine by by April. You're going to be able to make a same-day appointment and walk in and get get your shot if you haven't gotten it yet. And if you're going to, as I keep saying, if you're going to tell me that I'm going to get two shots and then after that, uh, nothing is different, um, that is just not going to happen. I mean, governor, I mean, people can use emergency powers forever. uh, But if you want to stimulate extremism in the American body politic, you're going to go on like this, like QAnon is not anybody, you know, QAnon is not the fault of, you know, the of 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 liberals. But um what is going to be the fault of liberals is the extre- is is the anti-government extremism that arises in the wake of governors saying, "No, I'm sorry, you can't go to church." You know, I'm really sad, but you can't go to church. I mean, really. And you can't sing. If you go to church, you can't sing. No singing. It's like this is America. We don't. This is not. This is not America. And you know, but you know what is America is, uh, is unfortunately sometimes is getting into credit card debt. So I want to talk to you about Upstart because you know that credit card, the one you're afraid to look at to see what the balance is. If you've been avoiding your debt, it's time to confront it. Upstart can help you face it and finally pay it off. If you have multiple credit cards, you know that tracking multiple balances, due dates, and website logins can be stressful. Upstart makes things simple with one monthly payment in one place. It's the fast and easy way to get a personal loan to pay off your debt all online, whether it's paying off credit cards, consolidating high interest debt, or funding personal expenses. Over half a million people have used Upstart to get a simple fixed monthly payment. Upstart finds smarter rates with trusted partners because they assess more than just your credit score. With a five-minute online rate check, you can see your rate up front for loans from $1,000 to $50 thousand dollars you can get approved the same day and can receive funds as fast as one business day if debt is taking over your life it's time to get a fresh start with upstart find out how upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash commentary that's upstart.com slash commentary don't forget to use that url to let them know we sent you loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided in your loan application so go to upstart.com slash commentary uh tomorrow uh the uh impeachment trial uh begins in the senate um i'm going to say this for the 75,000th time trump has been impeached 
saying his impeachment is illegitimate is demented. He was impeached while he was president. This whole question that arises over whether or not he can be tried now that his presidency is over is separate from the fact that he was impeached, and this is a trial on the charges for which he was impeached. It is not an impeachment trial. It is a it is a trial. The impeachment already happened. He is impeached. It's been impeached twice. Once he was impeached stupidly. This time, in my view, he was impeached correctly, and now there will be a trial. And he will almost certainly be acquitted. Right? Or, Noah, you have been holding out hope, I would say, that uh, this was not a foregone conclusion. Where are you on the it's not a foregone conclusion front today? Well, I don't know. (laughs) It's probably a foregone conclusion, but it's also um, folly at this point to anticipate um, what's going to happen. Uh, because we, over the last two months, we've been shocked by our failures of imagination. So it's simply um, prudent to withhold that kind of judgment. Um, nevertheless, it does seem like everybody wants to get this thing over with pretty quickly. Uh, I'm not sure the managers, we don't know the extent to which managers want to call witnesses. Um, there was an effort to get the president to testify, which was kind of clever. Um, obviously was never going to go anywhere, but perhaps that's indicative of more of a desire to see witnesses called than just to make headlines. Um, We don't know yet. Uh, So we're going to see when the trial commences, but Democrats want a a quick trial and Republicans want a quick trial and everybody wants a quick trial. So everybody seems to think that this is a foregone conclusion. So if you're taking your cues from members of Congress, it's going to be a foregone conclusion. Um. Scott McFarland. The only thing that alters that yeah. judgment, by the way, is the extent to which evidence is presented that um, is new. If they're simply going over old ground, nothing's going to change. If we actually investigate who is doing what, where, and when, a lot of which remains pretty ambiguous to a degree that I find intolerable, uh, that could change the calculation. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Does it matter? I mean, let's put it this way. Um, yeah. Oh, my God. Does it matter? Why? Yeah. What the president was doing when the Capitol was being ransacked and there was a no, conspicuous no. four-hour delay of the de- of the deployment of troops to safeguard the members of Congress. We don't know what happened in that time. We don't know what the president was doing. We don't know what happened at the Pentagon. So, yeah, it matters a lot. No, no, I don't mean I, I don't mean that it, it, it doesn't matter as a matter of, you know, history and, and fact. I mean, I don't think any of that is going to matter in terms of how the proceedings are are finally judged, if you think that uh, particularly if Biden and Schumer don't want a long trial, the only way to get the uh, the nugget that could be the thing that gets Trump, unless they have it and they're holding on to it and it's going to be the first witness and we don't know who that is and they bring him in surprise and he says something, uh, you need a long trial because you need that moment, you know, three months in or whatever, when Alexander Butterfield says there's a taping system in the White House. I mean, you need a moment that changes the dynamic, and that actually needs time, and there isn't going to be time, apparently. Um, which itself is weird because it's like, why not? Like, I, I, you know, I don't understand why they're not letting, why they won't let this play out. Um, I, I genuinely don't like let it play out. Well, how's it going to harm Biden? I don't, you know what they need to 
so you think it's really great for them to be standing around debating which proposal to hand tens of thousands of dollars to families is the right proposal? I don't know. Um, we now have this new thing where you know Mitt Romney issued this child tax credit idea, and now we know why he did it because he knew that the Democrats were about to issue a child tax credit idea of their own, and he wanted to st- issue one to, that was structured in a slightly different way. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I you know I, I don't know why if they can do Senate work in the morning and they can have the trial, why they can't have a trial for six weeks. I'm sort of at a loss well, to not, understand. I don't know that they can't. I think they don't want it because they... Why? why? That's what I mean. Why? Why because don't, they don't I'm sorry. There's construction going on around me. I don't know if you can... But oh, they, I can't hear okay. it. So. But um, because I think they don't want to, they don't want Trump's presence uh, to linger and hover over the, the, be, the beginning of this presidency, A. <clears throat> and B, I think it, 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 they're afraid that um, the, the Trumpy fans... Yeah will be energized by um, a sort of, you know, uh, uh, an, an additional data point in their persecution complex. Maybe. I I, I just, you know, I, I don't understand their, I don't understand their, the logic that says we, I understand it's two different bodies and it's a, it's a, it's a month later and all of that. But the logic that said we have to impeach him, which I agree with, but they, we have to impeach him now. We have to impeach him you know, the a week after we got to get it done and impeach him. Uh, and now it's like uh, a month later and it's like, now nah, we just basically are going to have like, you know, four days of desultory uh, hearings and then he'll be acquitted and then we can move on. Like, is there no, you know, iron in the, you know, I thought this was, you know, vitally important to the, to the future of the Congress and to our democracy. And every liberal pundit said this. I said it. A lot of people said it, but apparently not. You know what? Oof, let's move on so we can just throw trillions of dollars down the gullet of the, you know, uh, through from from the government down the gullet of the American people to to make them you know, feel happy with us. I mean, either either this is like a, a, a an important and notable event in American history that needs to be analyzed, investigated, and 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 consequences being meted out, or it isn't. And Democrats are now acting as unserious in their own way if this is how they're going to proceed as the Republicans who said we shouldn't even be doing this at all. Like, how different is it to do it this way than the Republicans who voted to say that the whole proceeding was unconstitutional? Aren't they effectively saying, well, we can't make our case and we, we, you know, we can't, so we should just move on so that we can, you know. It is is strange, especially because the argument about Trump since 2016 has been that he's this norm breaker, this institution destroyer, this 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 thing that we have to, you know, contain and then repair. And actually, I would like to hear all this evidence presented. I would I, I would much rather hear a dispassionate case made in the Senate than to listen to AOC, you know, whinge and whine about how scared she was, even though I know I get it. She was scared. But I'd like to he- see the evidence. I'd like, as, as Noah said, I'd really like to know what was going on in the executive branch that day, why decisions were made and by whom and were those legitimate? Because the process does matter here. And I think in terms of the 
the uh, the weird situation that we'll find ourselves in every four years when a president has a, a span of time where he or she still has power but is been has been voted out. You know, I think for the sake of of the future, it would be good to have in place uh, some idea of what went wrong in this case. That's even separate from Trump's monomania, but just where did the system break down that we know we can fix that has more that has. That, that is extraneous to the to the punishment of Trump in particular, if that makes well, sense. Well, you won't you you won't get a dispassionate case from Congress. <clears throat> there may be a, um, a commission, which I think is necessary um, from not unelected officials, a bipartisan commission to find out what happened here. I think that's very valuable. But what you're going to get from Congress is just pathos all the way down. They're already talking about the extent to which they represent they can represent events better than anybody else because they experienced it. They're not just jurors in this trial. They're the victims of this crime. Um, you've heard that from more than one member. And if that's what you're going to get, then people like you, Christine, are going to be very disappointed with proceedings um, because it's 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 meant it's to tug at the heartstrings. Right. It's an emotional trial, not a uh, process one. And there we go. Well, maybe it. that's why Biden doesn't want it. Maybe he doesn't want to want to maybe he doesn't want that. Because it will, you know, it, it will draw all the attention away from what he's trying to do right now. That's certainly the case. And what does President Klain think? That's what I want to know. Uh, we will uh, take up these and other matters tomorrow. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for going to iTunes and leaving those generous reviews. Uh, I'll have uh, more to say this week about our our merch, our shirts that you can buy and walk around in and advertise us to all of your friends who are going to not know what you're talking about. Thanks again. For Noah, Christine, and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>